2: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, August 14th, the Indigo Child Edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate, and the mom of Harry, five, Sam, three, and Wally, one.
2: I'm Dan Kois. I'm also an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is nine, and Harper, who turns seven tomorrow.
0: Ah! I feel like it's always a birthday in your family. It's like literally
2: twice a year. (laughs) I can't keep
0: track. On today's show, we'll talk about what we let our kids do on their own and when we let them do it. And then Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, will join us to discuss the new Bravo reality show, Extreme Guide to Parenting. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call about making wimpy daughters less wimpy. First, a couple of reminders. Please subscribe to Mom and Dad are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app and keep spreading the word. And please, if you haven't yet, sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's awesome membership plan, where you get extra podcast segments, uh, some of our favorite Slate stories read by their authors, and more. Go to slate.com plus to sign up. Okay, triumphs and fails. Dan, you want to go first?
2: Sure. Um, I could focus on a fail, which is that we have still not figured out what to get Harper for her birthday tomorrow. But I have faith that that's all going to work out somehow. Um, So instead. (laughs) What does she want? Who knows? Uh, I don't know. She we can't. I mean, she wants a million things, but we can't get her to focus on one thing. So I don't know. Um, But so instead, I'm going to do a triumph. And my triumph is that Alia and I, uh, in the last week watched guardians of the galaxy obvious child edge of tomorrow and boyhood in theaters because our kids were at sleepaway camp wow so we let other people have triumphs and fails with them while we went to movies it was great did they have fun they had a great time. But did whatever. they want to go or did you have I to push movies. them to go? No, they both really wanted to go. They were both totally into it. They, in fact, went to different camps. Um, they each had friends going to different camps. And so they we decided to send them with friends who they would hang around with instead of, the you know, their sister of a different age who they wouldn't actually see all that much. And they were both fabulous successes and they had unbelievably great times and love them and want to go back longer next year. Wait,
0: one last question. If they didn't want to go, would you have made them go?
2: Yes. Okay.
0: Uh, I agree. Correct.
2: Thank you. How about you?
0: (laughs) I think, I'm curious. I'm going to pose this. I'm going to tell you what happened, and then you can tell me if you think this is a triumph or a fail. (laughs) Okay? Ready. So, and listeners, you can also tell me. Uh, Last weekend, a neighborhood friend invited us to scooter races in the park. She, like, set up little paths for the kids to race on, um, which was very fun. we told our kids about it a few days in advance, and they were excited, and I, like, Spent the next few days totally pumping them up about it and essentially indulging my competitive streak through them. Uh, They picked out, like, racing outfits. (laughs) I got them really pumped up. John sprayed their scooters with WD-40 the morning before we left to give them a (laughs) little extra boost. Uh, But when we got to the park, it was clear that the other kids, lovely kids, all happy to be there. But they just weren't, like, quite as pumped up as ours were. Maybe they didn't even know that it was going to be races. They just thought they were scooting to the park. They just didn't care. And so I worried for a second that I maybe had overdone it. Um, but in the end, first of all, Harry won all the races. Ha <laughs> <laughs> suck it. Um, but also, <clears throat> he was I was really proud of him because he cheered for the kids that came up behind him, including Sam, who amazingly came in fourth, thank you WD-40, competing against all these older kids. Uh, But I guess I think this is a triumph. It's cool for them to feel competitive and want to win at something and get to feel what it feels like to care about something and win. But I'm curious. What do you think?
2: Uh, I think it could have been a fail. (laughs) But the fact that your kids were not assholes turned it into a triumph, which I guess is thanks to you and somehow, some way.
0: Right. Must have been thanks to
2: me. Good job. Thanks. All right. Let's move on to our first topic. What were you allowed to do by yourself as a kid? And what do you let your kids do by themselves now? Prompted by the outcry over the arrest of Deborah Harrell for allowing her nine-year-old to play in a South Carolina park while she was at work, Slate's Hannah Rosen and Jessica Gross wanted to know whether our childhoods were really more idyllic and independent than childhood is in 2014. So, they created a survey. They surveyed Slate's readers about what age they were when they got to do certain things all by themselves, and how they're dealing with their own kids on those very same questions. When did you first get to stay home alone? When did you first get to walk uh, far away from your home by yourself? When did you first get to stay out after dark? 6,000 readers took the survey and the results are totally fascinating. They confirm the shorter leash the kids are on these days. And they also confirm that the real leash shortening happened not just in the last few years as we've all become helicopter parents, but in the 1980s when paranoia about stranger danger peaked. So, Allison, I want to go through a couple of these questions and answer them for ourselves. But let's define our terms here. We were both suburban kids, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Raised in the late 70s through the 80s, right? Right. Now, Allison lives in Brooklyn and I live in the D.C. suburbs. And I think it will be interesting to go through a couple of these questions and then ask our readers to email in with their responses to some of these questions as well. So here's the first question. Allison, when were you first allowed to stay home alone?
0: Okay, this is going to be hard to do, Dan, (laughs) because I don't have a great – I don't remember a lot of the answers to these questions. And I also wondered whether survey answers – um, didn't remember or had sort of concocted memories of these things. Uh, so I have no memory of staying home by myself until high school. I can't believe that that, w- that is true, but that's my memory.
2: What about your kids? When we're, when are, do you think you will let your kids stay home alone, or have you not established that yet?
0: Well, I have before gone out and walked my dogs. Well, my kids are home now, mm-hmm. baby sleeping and walk my dogs i only have one dog walk my dog baby sleeping and the two kids watching tv so i that's... think
2: you're referring to your aching dogs yeah yeah
0: <laughs> that's like a 10 minute staying home and totally illegal um, correct yeah when will i actually let them stay home i guess i guess i would let the oldest by himself stay home maybe at 9 uh Watching his brothers, that's probably a different, a different story.
2: Yeah. Nine seems like a totally reasonable age. That is when we started letting Lyra stay home by herself. Although I will say that when I told other parents in our neighborhood that Lyra was home by herself, the looks I got, oh, my God, they were definitely weighing carefully what their next words would be to me. Uh, all the all the other moms and dads in the neighborhood. So that seemed like surprising to some people. All right. Well, then let's move to a different question, one that I think you probably do have a better memory of because it's something that presumably happened when you were older. When were you allowed to earn money?
0: Um, high school, ninth grade.
2: Ninth grade? Yeah. Was that a matter of your parents not feeling you were ready for it or you not getting around to it?
0: Yeah. I don't think there was ever a question of whether I was allowed or not. I don't think it was something that I was – asking to do or wanting to do probably until I was in high school.
2: You? So I got a paper route in sixth grade. Okay. And so, I mean, not only was I earning money, but I was also walking around or skateboarding around my neighborhood by myself at 4.30 in the morning uh, in sixth grade. Uh, and as far as I am concerned about my kids, and they can earn money as soon as possible. Like, I would like them to start earning money now. That would be great.
0: I find that I found the question actually to be a funny one to have on the survey. I mean, I suppose doing a paper route at four thirty in the morning by yourself is—it fits into all these other things about what you're allowed to do by yourself. But if you're, say, I don't know, in sixth grade and allowed to go somehow work at a fast food restaurant, which you wouldn't be allowed to do, but you know, work around other people, then it's not a question of of being alone. I mean, I, I guess it's a question of independence, but it seems. Yeah, it,
2: I think it matters. It's a question of independence, and I do think that certain families have different philosophies about about whether about whether earning your own money is something a kid should be allowed to do at a certain age, like or whether that should be something that, you know, your parents handle or deal with or worry about on your behalf.
0: I am totally in my favor in favor of my kids learning the value of work and earning their own money. I can't envision what that job would be at a, at a young age. There are no I mean, kids don't do paper routes in right. Brooklyn. I don't know. They don't do them anywhere. I don't they do them, anywhere, think they do them anywhere. Right. No. So what are those jobs that a young kid could have?
2: They could be child stars. That's probably what's going to happen with mine. <laughs> they
0: could opinion. babysit.
2: They could babysit. Yeah. What's the So the going age for babysitting in our neighborhood, and this is actually something that the survey didn't ask, but which I think is a really interesting question, is that basically once kids are in middle school, they are considered essentially eligible for babysitting. So there are sixth graders who will do daytime babysitting in our neighborhood. And then once you hit seventh or eighth grade, you are then eligible for nighttime babysitting.
0: Sixth grade is how old?
2: Sixth grade is uh, usually 12. thirteen okay does that seem crazy to you?
0: No that seems right to me. Um, we actually have it there's a ten year old in our neighborhood who's incredibly responsible and we've talked about whether we should let her watch not all but a couple of our kids during the day
2: yeah, I mean that seems reasonable and legitimate to me um, but may, maybe someone will email in and say that you're crazy, but so you seem to have an issue in some respects with the survey or a concern about the survey that people remember their childhoods differently than they actually occurred do you think that that is at play here
0: I think partly I mean I believe this I believe the outcome the shifts I mean this survey c- confirms what other studies have found I don't think that you know I don't think we got bad results at all but um but I also think I don't know I, I don't think I'm probably unique in not really remembering that first time my parents let me do every single thing I can sort of like imagine my when around I was out late with my friends bike riding uh, but I don't remember like Okay, tonight is your first night that I'm allowing you to go out bike riding. So I just, you know, I wonder. I think there is probably a bit of nostalgia in play that's always, it's always, you know, the generation that is it's the parents now that thinks it was better back when they were kids. Um, but I definitely think it's a real thing.
2: Um, do you, would you let your kids fly alone?
0: With a, you know, minder, right? An employee of a, of...
2: no i mean most airlines don't do that anymore they i mean well they assign
0: someone to like watch your kid right to like make sure your kid is
1: okay
2: not always no i mean i think that there may be some airlines who still do that but in general it is that they're the stewardesses know that your kids are traveling alone and if you know they get off the plane and no one's there someone will walk them up the gate off the plane and make sure someone picks them up but it's not like there's one person who's assigned to them at all times
0: right I mean, yeah, eventually I would let them fly alone. Um, what age? The, again, like, these are really hard for me to answer because my kids are still little. What I, I, What do you think? Do you think
2: Lyra flew girls? alone? Lyra flew alone last summer, and Lyra and Harper are flying alone together to Wisconsin on Sunday. And it was, like, a fairly painless process other than the, like, total paralyzing fear I felt the entire time the plane was in the air. But it was painless for them. They loved it, and yeah. it was like a it was like a basically totally safe thing that made them feel so grown up. And we've talked about this before. That it seems like the real goal, in many ways, is to like instill a sense of adventure in your kids and to make them feel like they've accomplished things, while also keeping it you know as safe as you can really keep it. Um, you know, it's a, and to that point, you know, letting them ride bikes around the neighborhood seems fine. If you have a neighborhood where people don't drive like lunatics and where biking is like safe, right? you know, that's a way to let them feel like they're having an adventure while not actually putting them in danger. Right. That's the line that we are always trying to draw.
0: I'm going to be honest when I'm th- when I think about any of these things, my answer doesn't really depend on whether I think it's a safe or a dangerous thing. I think e- each time you ask me a question, I think do people do that? (laughs) Like, I want to know what the norm is, which is actually the worst, you know, instinct to have. Yeah. Um, So, and and again, I feel like I have no sense of when kids are now allowed to do certain things and it shouldn't really matter, although I do want my kids to be out with other kids. I don't want them to be, like, the only kid out in the street bike riding simply because that's not as fun or as safe. Um, They want, you know, neighborhood kids when we were growing up, looked out for each other or hurt each other, but also looked out for each other. The other day, I let my three-year-old, I let Sam, scoot around the block without me. And I sort of thought that was a bad decision. Like he, I guess he waits at the corner for me when I see him, but who knows? Like he's three. And I had like nightmares about it that, that night.
2: But he was fine, right? He was fine. I don't know. I feel like city kids especially have instilled in them very, very early Corner behavior. Like, you understand the way a corner works. You understand not to cross the street. Like, even before we left New York, when our kids were not even four and two, our kids knew about corners and streets and knew that that is a place that you stop and you do not cross without an adult. And so that was like one of the things I was least concerned about. And, you know, riding a scooter around the block or letting Lyra walk around the block, I think is something we did in New York when she was four because. Because that specific behavior was so instilled in them. And that's actually something that they have sort of lost now because we live in the suburbs and we don't walk as much as we did in New York and we don't specifically walk across the street that often. And so one of the reasons that I feel like my kids – probably the primary reason that my kids have a shorter leash now than I did when I was a kid – doesn't have to do necessarily with stranger danger or with a different kind of community or a lack of community or anything like that. It has to do with a simple fact that I live on a really busy street in the suburbs and I lived on a dead end street when I was growing up. And on that dead end street, I think my parents felt free almost immediately to let me go out and roam the neighborhood to my heart's content and go to all my friends' houses, which were all across the street from mine. Whereas, I do not feel comfortable at all letting my kids cross our busy Williamsburg Boulevard to get to all their friends' houses, which are also across the street, because it just seems like a really bad idea. We live right in the middle of the block, and there are fucking cars coming over the hill, and they're going 45 miles an hour, and it just seems like a disaster waiting to happen. And so maybe what we really need to do is to just give our kids street-crossing lessons. <laughs> like what do you maybe think? Maybe that is the solution. What
0: do you think about um if you if left to their own devices like if you let your kids I don't know the place we used to go would, would be the mall now I guess our, the mall to my kids is the playground but one of the things that came out in reader comments the responses to this survey were like oh yeah we used to you know make fires and blow up light bulbs and whatever do you know dangerous some a little bit dangerous stuff and I kind of think like When kids get together alone these days, do they even do that stuff? Like, like, I I just wonder, I feel like have like have we sucked that out of them or are there has culture changed the things that kids want to do? I feel like if, if I left my if I left Harry alone with like a bunch of kids his own age, they would not, you know, do naughty things like that.
2: I don't think that's true. I think that a a certain amount of that energy has been sucked up by video games in a way that was not true when we were kids. I mean, we played Atari now and then, but, you know, we did not – video games were not something that could occupy hours of our time the way that they often do and can for kids now. But I do think that if you put especially a big bunch of boys together over the age of like six or seven, within – Twenty minutes, they will be intentionally breaking something. Yeah. Um. And like, I think that that's the way probably it should be. And I mean, not exclusively boys either. I also see girls get into crazy mischief with stuff all the time. But I do. I don't think that that has gone away. I think that there is still a sense of physical experimentation. But it that comes. More easily by being unchaperoned for a long period of time, which just doesn't happen that often. In fact, I think it happens most often for my kids at school. At school is the place where they're most likely to be with a big group of kids with no adult paying attention to them for more than 10 minutes because at home that just doesn't happen that much at all.
0: Yeah. Definitely my best best memories of childhood were like, you know, walking around the neighborhood and there's a place we used to go back in the woods and that's where I first smoked and that's where I first drank and that's what I want my kids to do too. Um,
2: and, you don't even have woods though.
0: Well, yeah. I don't know if it's harder to, to manage that because if they do that, you know, in Prospect Park, they're going to get arrested.
2: Right. Or... Also, cigarettes are literally like $15 a pack <laughs> right now. It's going to be really hard for them to get their hands on a cigarette.
0: Well, they'll be working.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. All right, listeners, we want to hear from you. Are you keeping your kids on a shorter leash than than you were on when you were little? Are there things that you let your kids do now that you would have never gotten away with when you were a kid? Do you have a really great story of setting something on fire during your unsupervised childhood? Send us an email at at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. All right. So we now want to... I uh, have our very first advertisement, our very first sponsor, Hooray, dun, dun,
0: dun, dun, dun. here on
2: Mom and Dad are Fighting. Um And excitingly, it is a sponsor that it will not be hard for us to recommend with enthusiasm. It is the movie Boyhood. From Richard Linklater, the director of School of Rock, Before Midnight, and Dazed and Confused, comes this groundbreaking movie about childhood and parenting filmed over 12 years with the same cast. The New York Times calls Boyhood one of the most extraordinary movies of the 21st century. Slate's Mom and Dad are Fighting podcast calls Boyhood fucking awesome. Now playing in a theater near you, watch the trailer at boyhoodmovie.com. Below this, Allison, I've written talking points. I've seen it three times. It better get nominated for Best Picture. How about you?
0: I've seen it one time. I'm waiting in the second time so that John can see it. Loved it very much. Highly
2: recommend You can also listen to our conversation with Richard Linklater about parenting in our July 17th episode that was um, two episodes ago. It was a great talk that we had with him. You can find it in your podcast app or just by simply Googling Slate Mom and Dad Boyhood. Um, He is great. The movie is great. Highly recommended um, for parents and non-parents alike. It is really, 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 really good.
0: Okay. So each week we take a call and question from a listener, and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Ask us anything, and we will do our best to answer. Today, we have a call from Ken in Seattle, Washington. Hi, my name is
2: Ken. I am a colleague from Seattle, Washington. I have a five-year-old son, a three-year-old daughter, and a two-year-old son. It's a busy house. Uh, My question is specifically about my daughter. She is adorable and... uh, a little bit naughty sometimes, and uh, we're trying to, but she also gets hurt a lot by her brothers, and sometimes she, I, she's tying it up a little bit,
0: sometimes she's just
2: truly hurt, and I'm trying to teach her, I'm trying to learn the difference between trying to get her to
1: be a big girl and letting her be hurt uh, sometimes, and so I'd love
0: to get some advice about uh, how to kind of navigate
2: when she gets hurt, when she's not hurt, when she just needs to kind of suck it up, and Try not to use the phrase "big girl panties" around her, because I think that's wrong, but maybe it's not wrong. So anyway, any anyway, advice you guys have would be great. Thanks so much. I don't think the phrase "big girl panties" is wrong. Am I wrong?
0: No, although I don't really get it in this context. I mean, it's no. you
2: pull on your big girl panties and suck it up. Like, don't be a baby about it.
0: Yeah, no, I don't think it's wrong. Do you? I I can't tell from Ken's question if there's like a gender component to this question or not. It just happens to be that his daughter is the one who he is trying to. You know, figure out how to deal with her.
2: I think it's something that parents of both genders deal with, but I can totally see it being a specific problem with a girl feeling a little bit at at the mercy of two boys in a family. Like that makes sense to me.
0: But do you think it's, it's easier to tell a boy, "Suck it up, put on your big boy pants," and 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 parents are like more sympathetic for some sexist I bet, reason? I, I bet that's daughter. true for
2: some parents that yeah. that that it's easier to tell a boy, you know, be a man. Yeah, don't. Don't cry about this for some people. I mean, this is I thought this was a really great question because Harper, despite not having brothers, is quite similar. My younger daughter, Harper, is in a stage right now where she when she has sort of any sort of she used to be very fearless physically and she's still somewhat fearless physically. But yet when any like little physical mishap happens, she is very likely to cry when like our dog like jumps past her and lightly scrapes her on the leg (laughs) or when lyra like bumps into her or something she she's doing it it seems clear to me as a way of trying to get attention and trying to get sympathy points which drives me like a like super crazy and so but sometimes she does actually legitimately get hurt and i want to respect that and i want her to feel like we take that seriously when it is the case um and so You know, two things that I can say for Ken and Allison, I would love to hear what you have to say too. But the first is it really helps, I think, when some kind of physical incident happens that you witness to not immediately leap into action to uh, deal with and worry and soothe. Some people are really good at that as parents, at standing back for a second and waiting to see what happens and being able to sort of instantly tell the difference between a real serious injury that requires you to leap in and something that doesn't. Some parents have more trouble with it or they just have the impulse to console instantly, which is obviously natural, but which I find, at least in my circumstances, often causes what could otherwise have been something that would have been brushed off or shook off by Harper or Lyra, for that matter, to turn into a big deal. If all of a sudden we're swooping down saying, oh, no, are you OK? Um, and the other thing that I would say is that talking it out with Harper really seems to help. She is really good at distinguishing when she stops and thinks about it between physical pain, right? Like, oh, it hurt. It hurts right now or it hurt for a second and now it doesn't hurt anymore And being scared or having our feelings hurt. Sometimes just sitting with her and sort of going through the specific feeling she's actually having at that moment really helps. Because it shows her, I think, that we're taking her seriously. But it also helps her figure out that she's not actually having a real problem. And that's fine.
0: Uh, Yeah, I totally agree with both those things. I am a hangbacker. Wait to see. First, even if it is a bad fall, especially with Wally, sort of like hang back and see. Because sometimes they boink their head really hard and then they get up and it's fine and you're like, okay. And sometimes he starts sobbing. Um, but same with the older kids. I definitely hang back and even like ha- once they do start sobbing, hang back and kind of, you know, yes, not make a big deal about it. Unless, of course, it is a really big deal. And the worst is when you don't see it um, and then you don't know whether, you know, what happened. Although right. you can, I guess, usually see if there's a big egg on their head or a huge cut gash on their knee. Um, the other thing is I always say, hold on, does it still hurt now? That's like my go-to line. And often, like you said, it doesn't hurt anymore. They just can't stop themselves from crying because they're all worked up. Uh, So I say, yes, lean toward, like, I lean toward the, you're fine, let's get up. Does it still hurt? My one Band-Aid to the problem is band-aids. I will give out band-aids <laughs> like for anything because that totally yeah. works. So like, yeah. I have a band-aid and you give them a band-aid and then everything's fine. And I used to like withhold band-aids because this this cut doesn't, you know, need a band-aid. This one does, but this one doesn't. Let's see how, does this one need a band-aid? But now I just give band-aids for everything,
2: even invisible boo-boos. That's a really good idea. <laughs> and I do think the gender issue is interesting and I would just sort of basically address it by saying uh, I, I see... I understand why for some people this is an an issue with girls maybe more than it is with boys. I understand why for some people they have an instinctive response with boys to more easily tell them to suck it up. But I have no problem also telling girls to suck it up and put on their big girl panties and not make a big fuss out of something that isn't a big deal. And I encourage everyone to do the same.
0: Okay, on to our second topic. Extreme Guide to Parenting is a new reality show on Bravo, which each week follows families with very specific or unique parenting styles. Is that the same specific or unique? Why am I saying that? Let me start it again. (laughs) Extreme Guide to Parenting is a new reality show on Bravo, which each week follows families with very unique parenting styles and philosophies. The first episode follows the Adler family, whose mom calls her approach to parenting eco-kosher shamanistic aromatherapy and the Masterson Horn family, two dads whose philosophy is to basically never leave their daughter's side. I have a lot of feelings about the show and here to discuss them with me with us is Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin. Hey Willa. Hey. Hey Willa, what did you think of the
1: show? Well, so I have to offer a disclaimer on appearing on this podcast, which your you know listeners should know, which is that I do not have a child. So, right. I may have different feelings about a show about crazy parents than you guys do. Right. Many Thoughts of our listeners legitimate. also
2: don't have children, Right.
1: I, I would just say, I just thought it was important information, a relevant piece of information, anyway. I thought um, you going to say, like, I am an Adler offspring. <laughs> I am an eco-shamanistic <laughs> aromatherapy uh, practitioner. No, I, I thought the show was really interesting almost mostly because of its point of view, which is simultaneously... Like, look at these crazy parents, so feel better than them, right? They're, they take three parents. I mean, the first two episodes have three sets of parents who all have, are the kind of parents who have philosophies that they say straight-facedly to the camera that seem at times extremely intense to the point of being sort of like, you're just supposed to wonder what these people are doing, you know, that it's it's too extreme. And then at the same time, obviously, they're all extremely loving, extremely engaged parents. So. You know, it's kind of trying, as with most reality shows, to sort of have it both ways where you feel a little bit superior to them, but also they don't seem so horrible all the time.
2: Right. It's like, I mean, one notable thing about this show, unlike some reality shows, a lot of reality shows, you can just tell that everything in these people's future lives is going to be a train wreck. When in fact, it mostly seemed to me that probably all these kids are going to eventually turn out just fine because as as sort of out there as their parents' parenting strategies might be, yes, they are all based essentially in a great deal of love and, and affection for those children, and I bet those kids will be okay.
0: Except <laughs> that they're putting them on a reality show on Bravo.
2: Yeah, well, so that does suggest a slightly larger pathology, and it seems like maybe the real extreme guide to parenting should be a reality show about parents who put their kids on <laughs> reality shows.
1: <laughs> the, although the, I do think the fact that it's just like these one-offs, and the, like it's, you know the, the families appear in one episode, and often the kids are extremely little and like never going to remember it makes it less totally strange to me. I, I mean, I think also it's the fact that I mean, it's it's not good. Obviously, it's not good to have your of <laughs> show. But I think also the fact that these parents sort of or some of them seem like they really imagine themselves as representing an idea. It's like they're proselytizing that idea a little bit, um, which is which is a strange thing, obviously, but it's sort of, I think, part of their motivation for being on the show.
0: Well, and it's very, I mean, to me, it's its very, at that part, is very true to life. The way you decide, in many instances, to raise your kid is what you really deep down think is the right way to do it, not just, like, your way to do it. And a lot of the parents on the show do say, like, this is what's best. The, the, on one of the episodes, it only follows one family um, the whole time, these, this att- attachment parenting family. And the mother says many times to her friend who doesn't breastfeed and doesn't um and doesn't do other attachment things and wants to vaccinate her children and wants to vaccinate her children, which the uh, with the which the the attachment parenting mother is pretty sure she's not going to do. And the episode is largely about her deciding whether or not to expose her kid to chickenpox. But what she says, this mother says t- to her friend over and over again is like, this is what's. I'm choosing what's best for my family. You have to do what's best for your family. But the truth is that she doesn't think that. And neither do I,
1: probably, even though I mean, I mean, that's what's it. so bogus and so heated about all these parenting conversations is it's not like, oh, I picked this pair of jeans and you picked that pair of jeans and no judgment. It's like, I am deciding how to raise a human being, right? I right. have decided most... this is the best way. It's not right. just like, it's cool. Do
2: whatever you want, right? The most human moment on any of these shows was the moment when that same mom, the attachment parenting mom, said, um, well, I'm not going to say that I love my baby more than anyone else <laughs> loves child. But I definitely do. But, and then everything after that but didn't matter because it is clear that that is, that is true for so many of us is that we understand that everyone else loves their children just as much as we do um, intellectually, but none of us feel that way. None of us feel that anyone could ever possibly love their children more than we do. And, and so that is all tied up in the way that we parent and Even if we are not the kinds of parents who proselytize for a certain style of parenting, we still often, in many cases, really do believe that we're doing things because we believe them to be the best way to be parents that we can possibly imagine.
1: What did you guys think of the show's choice with the attachment parent to have it focus on the chickenpox vaccine, which seems to me like the least loaded of any possible vaccine conversation you could ever have since... I mean, I I don't know about the two of you, but we all had chickenpox, right? I mean, it it doesn't – it's not like her aunt wants her mentions in passing polio and whooping cough vaccines, which seem like so much more of a big deal.
0: It's unclear – they leave it a little bit unclear whether this couple is talking about vaccines as a whole. Like, they they really focus it on chickenpox, but that scene with her aunt when she says, like, I've seen kids come into the hospital. Her aunt is a nurse. I've seen kids come into the hospital with – yeah, with whooping cough and have to be intubated or whatever – and so you don't really know are they re- are these right. parents thinking that they're not going to vaccinate at all, or are they just questioning the chickenpox vaccine? Which does seem, I agree with you. I mean, not to me, it's not. I we do all the vaccinations, right. but it does seem like one lower, one lesser, one you, less kooky yeah, thing than, than no vaccines at all. Yeah, I think probably. Although, why would the show choose that? Why would the show choose to make it less controversial? Well,
1: yeah, but I, I think that's sort of part of the tension of the show. Is like they kind of didn't want to just hang the parents out to dry. Completely at any point. Like, I mean, even the first mom, the the Adler mom, the eco-shamanistic one, I mean, she literally goes around spraying... Aura water on her children, and there's this amazing exchange. She has a son who seems like he probably has a lot of, is ADHD and very hyper and has a hard time in school. And she refers to him over and over again as an indigo child, at like to the point that she has a meeting with with a psychiatrist, and she says he's an indigo child. And the doctor says, "Well, he's he's never going to like wait online, you know. Grown up, you know, he's never going to be pay attention. Everyone has to wait online." And she says, "No, no, he has to, he's supposed to change the world." And you're like, "What?" <laughs> And at the same time, then later in the episode, the mom has this really heartfelt, you know, has really tortured about whether or not to put her son on meds, which seems really genuine, independent of all her kind of craziness about whether he's supposed to change the world or not. You know, like, I think they tr- keep trying to ground them. They have their extreme parenting parenting behavior, but then they sort of try to pull it back. So they seem like parents.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's actually really true to life, too, because you're I mean, the way her her connection to her connecting colors to her son as a way to explain his the way he relates to the world I thought was really moving like she wants to see her son who is I'm sure a really great kid also that's the one that felt like "Uh, I can't believe the son is in this this is not going to be good when he's older but because he's having a tough time and he's not a baby he's like 10 or something Mm -hmm. I don't know but anyway yeah she wants to see this as he's like the special snowflake and he's gonna and he's gonna have an impact on the world that Everyone else can't understand. And that, you know, that might be true. I don't know. But also, he might need some help at the same time. But I I think you can, as a human being, it's very relatable and sympathetic to like, want to not see your child as not to pathologize your child, but instead to elevate your child.
2: Allison, I think that you touched on something briefly there that I think is worth focusing on a little bit more, which is the real difference this show has when it's about big kids as opposed to when it's about babies. Um, I really enjoyed and found queasily interesting and had a good time judging the parents um, in the second episode and the the gay couple in the first episode who wouldn't let their nana – ever stay with the baby at all because they're crazy that felt very staged to me Did it you was read? all staged it's oh, all Well, staged. i know we it's all, staged, all agree, but that it's one all staged. felt even more right. staged but but the point i'm trying to make is that i i enjoyed those because they were babies uh or toddlers um the section with shira and yona and emma that family where the kids were older that made me really unhappy um Because those kids were older, not only because the kids are probably going to take a lot of abuse and will feel bad about the way that they were portrayed or the way that they allowed themselves to be portrayed at that age, but also because having those cameras there really affected those kids and their interactions with their parents in a way it doesn't when you're a baby or a toddler. When you're a toddler, you're just a toddler, whether there's a camera there or not. But Yona, for example, the boy in that family is the exact kind of kid. Who should not be in front of a camera because being in front of a camera just exacerbates everything that is already making his life difficult and makes him more performative and more weird and wacky and makes him more difficult to deal with and I'm i quite sure brought a lot of problems more – even more to a head than they potentially would have. And Emma is like having a nervous breakdown on screen in a way that made me really unhappy and uncomfortable and made me feel like, oh, I'm like a worse person for watching the show. Did would you, you feel the same feel
0: way, way if it was like a nightline segment on a family
2: dealing with whether or not to put their kids kid on meds? Uh, yeah, maybe. I wouldn't watch that either, I guess. I don't know. At least in that case, I would have a sense that there would be some takeaway from it right that the that they that at least they would have a talking head scientist who would explain to me like what the real story is with this kid as opposed to me just watching it and watching this these kids lives be unhappy and then sort of happier and then unhappy again
1: i don't know that the talking head scientist actually redeems that i mean it's like we don't there's not some simple solution and that was sort of also was unsatisfying about the episode which is that They kind of tried to tack on this sort of like happy moment that he's changed schools and he's sort of having, you know, he's doing better at this dinner table, you know, where the two siblings are just having such a hard time because Emma has told us throughout this episode in this way that actually made me wonder sort of when her mom watched it, if it wouldn't be like kind of like a come to Jesus moment about what's going on with her kids, that she's really focused all of her energy on her son and her daughter feels completely ignored and has says that explicitly to the camera. She calls her an
2: absent parent to her face.
1: <laughs> but, you know, but even that, because she hadn't actually formed like the sentence, like my mom is completely, I, my mom's great, except that she's completely obsessed with my brother, what she says to the camera. You know, I wouldn't, I wasn't sure that the mom would even get the absent parent thing in its totality in, instead of think, seeing, seeing it as just like something your rude teenager says to you in a kind of clever just trying to hurt you way that it actually that Emma actually meant it completely you know but anyway like the show is trying to sort of have this happy moment and it's totally fraught because emma starts freaking out about her own test like not getting enough attention and both of the adults say like this is really yona's moment even though we we know we've seen that it's like all been yona's moment right. so I, I don't i don't think that the show was really capable of handling a, a really I mean, ultimately, a really complicated and gray situation that's going to go on for years. I mean, these are little; these are not grown up kids yet.
0: So, what do you guys think the show's producers are are trying to do? Do you think they are trying to show these actually these like sort of freakish uh, choices in families, or do you think they're trying to <clears throat> show a, a universal experience? Uh, do you think it can be entertaining without being? Exploitative, or
2: I think Will is exactly right that they are trying to walk an extremely fine line of finding families that are weird but not awful. And awful families would make this a totally different kind of show and a much more objectionable and difficult one. Um, and you know, so far, you know, I have not watched more than two episodes so far. They basically have done it, done an okay job of showing us families that we can both. Judge and also relate to and have our hearts slightly warmed by.
0: Will you watch again?
2: No. Willa? No. <laughs> Allison, will you watch it again?
0: I, you know, I don't, it won't be appointment viewing. I'm not going to record it on my DVR, but I think, like, Willa, if I were flipping. I thought I was, like, choosing between Love It or List It and Extreme Parenting <laughs> <laughs> one night. I might really watch it again. I, w- I mean, my uh, John was, like, was not watching when I was watching last night. And then all of a sudden he was watching. And I realized, like, he wasn't going to bed, even though it was one in the morning, because he wanted to see how this chicken box thing turned out. So I guess we were a little drawn in. I, You know, I don't know if I'll watch it again. But I, I think I was. it was less of a train wreck than I expected it to be.
2: They should put that on the poster.
0: <laughs> less of a train
2: wreck than you expect it to
0: be. Okay, thanks, Willa. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Dan, what do you got?
2: I, uh, this week, am recommending playing cards with your kids. Um, We've been playing a lot of cards with our kids recently, a lot of Crazy Eights, a lot of Rummy. Um, We have told them that we will no longer play War with them because War sucks uh i'm really hoping to graduate them up to spades on our coming vacation um i really like this development because this is a great next step past like rat attack cat or other games that are like almost fun for adults but not quite fun for adults but card games are actually legitimately fun for adults um and even if you are steering them along and helping them along and sometimes losing on purpose card games are still fun for adults and also if you are not the kind of person who loses on purpose for kids, when you play against kids, you almost always get to win, which is also great. Um, I'm really excited about soon being able to teach them hearts and oh hell, and it's like a nice activity that is a little bit mellow and allows us to talk. And sometimes they get distracted enough by their cards that they will actually tell us things, and we really like it.
0: I love cards. Did you play euchre growing up, or is that not? Did that not I make I play it to euchre. Wisconsin?
2: I play euchre now, but weirdly. Taught by East Coasters, even though I grew up in the Midwest, the home of euchre. But I did not grow up in a real card playing family. Hmm.
0: When we were on vacation, we also played a lot of cards um, with the kids. And my sister has kids we were with them who are older. And we also brought. Do you know what Rummy Cube is?
2: No, it's a thing I hear about, but I've never played.
0: You've heard of it though? Okay, so we grew up playing Rummy Cube. It's like it's like Gin Rummy, but with tiles, like sort of like Mahjong tiles with with numbers on them. And this was like a regular family game that we played, and only on this vacation when I hadn't I played it since I was little. But my parents brought it, and we played it with the kids. And only then did I realize that most families did not have this game. I think it was made in Israel. I think it's like a game that only Jewish families played. I'm curious, listeners, if you <laughs> played this game Rummy Cube, which is really really fun uh, when you were growing up. Write me and tell me if you're Jewish, because I'm just curious if that's the if that's the explanation. OK, so my recommendation, this was really fun. Yesterday, I had the extreme pleasure of uh, sitting in a colleague's office who is like seven months pregnant, I think. She had just gotten back from lunch with her mother and her mother had brought her her own baby clothes, the, my colleague's baby clothes from when she was growing up in the 70s um and she brought them for her future daughter and we opened them up together i don't know why i got to be part of this <laughs> thing but holy shit they were so cute i mean i have a real like you know i love little girl clothes because i've never gotten to buy any right. for my own kids but these were crazy cute so if you're if you have a little daughter in your life or a little girl in your life uh or are looking to buy a baby gift for someone, go onto eBay and look up these brands. Debbie Dare. D-E-B-B-Y, Dare. Uh, Betty Terrell, which I believe is still a brand, but just look up the stuff from the 70s. And Betty is spelled B-E-T-T-I, Betty Terrell, Um, in Tiny Tots Original Imports. This stuff is really, really cute.
2: That is such a (laughs) hilarious recommendation. I can't (laughs) even stand it. I will say that uh, little boys' clothes from the 70s is also totally adorable and notable. I think both girls' and boys' clothes from any time before, like, 1986 is notable for how totally durable and long-lasting it is.
0: Yeah, these were, like, beautiful dresses that hadn't looked like they had never been worn.
2: Right. Well, one problem, though, is that with almost all these clothes, you may have to iron them. Yeah. Unless you don't care about your kids being rumpled, which maybe you don't, which I don't even awesome. know how to
0: iron. I've never picked up an iron, <laughs> really and truly. Well, there you go. Uh, and that's our show. <laughs> Please email us at dad at slate dot com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and call us with your questions at four two four two five five seven eight three three. Thanks to Willa Paskin for joining us.
2: Thanks as well to our sponsor, Boyhood from IFC Films. Thanks
0: to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and to Andy Bowers, executive producer of All Slate Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our intern, Laura Smith. This is her last week. Thanks, Laura. Laura. You've been awesome. You're the greatest. And thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. Thank you all for listening.